So you can define what calm means to you. But truly, it's the opportunity to be your best self, do your best work, and show up in the best possible way. Essentially, have that work-life harmony. This is the Sustainable Ambition Podcast, and I'm your host, Kathy Onetto. Here we explore how to be ambitious and navigate work from decade to decade without sacrificing your life or yourself. Today, I'm in conversation with Olga Trusova, author of the new design book, Calm Living, which we'll be discussing. Olga was schooled in the principles of business innovation at the Stanford Design School and while working as a consultant with global design firm IDEO and then as VP of Innovation for AAA. She is an expert in design thinking, strategy, and innovation, and is the founder of the innovation consultancy Bluefig and the lifestyle company Air is Mare. In this episode, Olga introduces us to design thinking principles and exercises that we can use to design our spaces and experiences to better work for us and support us doing our best work. She offers accessible ways to shape your space and how you work to really work for you, not against you, and to create calm versus chaos. This is an invitation for you to make simple, accessible design choices that can help you make your days feel more sustainable. Olga shows us how to do this with intention and experimentation. Let's step into Calm Living with Olga Trusova. I'm so excited to dig in. I have to say that you had me from the first page of the book with this statement that you wrote, quote, we all crave a little space for ourselves, personal space in which to express ourselves and do our best work. It's such, in some ways, a simple statement, yet so powerful of an acknowledgement that we all crave this space and can create and shape our space to support us in doing our best work. And it feels to me like something that is within our control that could have real power. And yet, I don't know if enough of us think about it intentionally. And I know I could do a better job. And we were just saying that as we got on to have this conversation that I was kind of complaining about my space, right? And so there you go. How could I be a little bit more intentional so that I can do my best work here on the podcast. So why do you think this is important for us to put some attention toward? Well, a couple of things. I think, well, one is, and I write about this in the book, I don't know if many people realize this, but the kind of the appreciation for our surroundings has been added to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So th- needs like for food and shelter. So that is aesthetics are very important for our well-being, mental well-being, you know, and physical well-being. So that's one sort of surprising thing, even for myself, right? I knew that it was important, but I didn't know it was that important. But I think it has become more apparent during COVID, right? So we were literally stuck inside for almost three years, right? With some exceptions. And so I think it became apparent to a lot of people. So, you know, in the process of writing this book, I've interviewed over 100 people, in a variety of roles and kind of life situations from executives like myself to, you know, single working moms to professionals to freelancers, etc. And it has become apparent that the stresses of being stuck inside and just kind of hating it essentially led to a lot of burnout, but also led to a lot of opportunities for people to rethink 
their spaces and what they're surrounded by. And you probably have a lot of friends and yourself have experimented a lot with your situation and your setup simply because you, again, you were stuck in this one space. And I think it also led to a lot of creativity. I've interviewed one woman and she was listening to a lot of Zoom calls that, you know, where she didn't have to participate and she just had to basically, you know, be there, right? So she bought a trampoline and she was jumping on the trampoline while listening to some of these calls. I'm just sharing that to say that it is extremely important for our mind to feel free and relaxed and without anger and anxiety, which we all have felt tremendously during COVID. Overall, you know, what it had led to is in many cases, burnout, stress, anxiety, and from a lot of medical professionals, we know that the lingering effects of the pandemic on our mental health are tremendous. You know, in my way as a designer, I found this is an interesting way again to think about our surroundings and change our surroundings to support ourselves and reflect who we are and what we do. A lot of people don't give themselves permission to change their space, right? Like we often feel, oh, I can change my clothes or I can buy a new gadget, but somehow space is fixed. We often feel like we need to fit into whatever space we have and however it was, you know, initially designed, not the other way around. And I argue that no, you spaces need to fit our needs right? And we do have permission to change. Some people have made drastic changes during COVID. They've moved states, they've moved countries, or they bought a bigger house, while others made small but really impactful changes to their behavior, also to their to their environment. I really love this. And I so appreciated you also bringing this idea of aesthetics on Maslow's hierarchy of needs into the conversation. Again, I think that was on the first page. And I was like, wait, what? I hadn't seen that. I had to, of course, Olga then go and look it up and see like, she's right. He added it in like the 70s. So interesting. And I know for myself, I've always been really affected by my space. I know they impact me. And so I've always paid attention to it. And yet I kind of felt a little self-indulgent thinking about that. And yet some small changes and some of these things you bring up in the book too, which we'll get into, but some things can be small and make such a big impact. So before we get there, I also wanted to just ask you about the idea of calm and calm living. So that's the book is called Calm Living. So how do you think about calm? And partly because I thought it was interesting that you also say like calm is not necessarily static. So how do you think about that term, calm. I want for you all, and this is what I wanted for myself, is for my mind to feel to feel free and relaxed and free of, of kind of anxiety and anger to be my best self at work and in life, right? And that might mean different things at different stages in my life or just even a week to week, right? So you can define what calm means to you. But truly is the opportunity to be your best self, do your best work and, and show up in the best possible way, say for your family, if you have one and essentially have that work-life harmony. So to me, that's what I was seeking. And that's why I wrote the book during COVID. I was a busy executive, a mother, a caretaker. So I had many roles and I still do. So I was seeking that balance or at least that fluidity that allowed me to be my best self in, in, in all of these capacities. So for me, calm is all about recalibrating and reassessing. And then for your work and your personal life to be able to shift seamlessly, right? So that's my personal take in my interviews, especially with a lot of busy women who have ambition, who also are balancing all kinds of things in their personal life. That was a very a burning need, right? And we do know that during COVID, millions of women have exited the workforce willingly because they couldn't sustain 
the pace and just the demands that all of these multiple roles have imposed. So for me, that that was a very personal and an important endeavor to sort of to leverage design thinking. So coming from the design world, right, I relied on the tools that I knew. So the the kind of this process for human centered problem solving to really dig deep into what are some of the needs and brainstorm unexpected ways to solve them. And again, treat this very big challenge we were all facing and we still are facing as a big opportunity. Like I was saying, we can be the designers of our own experiences. So that was my goal. I appreciate how you're pulling forward this idea of fluidity, recalibration, reassessment. And I'd love to step into that design thinking part because in that, what I really sense you doing is you're calling all of us forward to be designers of our own space and to use these human-centered design principles, which call us to be empathetic towards ourselves and others in order to really create these experiences and have our space really work for us. And so for those not familiar with design thinking, you cover some basics in the book. There are like three key elements. And I was wondering if you could review them at a high level. So you talk about a prototyping mindset, the right intentions and experience design. Could you share a little bit more about each of those? You know, I love design thinking. I think it's a great process. It is rooted in in human needs, first and foremost. And it allows for everyone to feel like they are designers, right? And if you look around your room or, you know, any anywhere really, every single object around you has been designed by somebody. And even the setup that you have, maybe you hired a designer, again, you designed that experience. You are already a designer, right? You designed your day and so on and so forth. But I just want for for everyone to have the prototyping mindset, right? A lot of people are probably familiar with prototyping from from product design, right? Developing physical products. So you try to develop physical products until you land on something that's desirable and, and feasible, and then you mass produce that. So prototyping mindset is, is exactly what I was talking about in terms of giving yourself permission to experiment with your space and your surroundings. And it's tied with experience design. So you don't have to design your own desk. You don't have to design your own chair. So what exactly can you prototype, right? So the first first kind of principle that I highlight, and there are many, many different ones for design thinking, but that's the one that I feel applicable for our spaces is a prototyping mindset. So yes, you can change your environment. You can move that chair. You can get another one, right? And so you can treat it all as a light prototype, right? The idea is to learn from that experiment and then move forward and decide on the final solution. The next one is about the right intentions. No size fits all. We are all unique. Our spaces need to support our unique creative spirit and our own environment, right? As soon as you step into someone's space, you kind of know, you feel how they are because it's their environment. It's very different. If you come to my place, it will be very different from your place, et cetera. So setting the right intentions is incredibly important before you begin any design project. You may want to increase your creativity. Somebody might want to increase their productivity. Someone might be on the verge of a burnout and they are seeking a kind of this calm down corner or refuge for themselves. So setting the right intentions before you begin any project is incredibly important. So you know what you're solving for with with your prototypes. And then the last one is experience design, right? And so when people think about design and interior design, they think about furniture and, you know, someone who will place that furniture in their space. 
what I argue is actually a, an interesting story that came out of the Design Institute I, I attended for my master's degree. And so in, it's at Stanford University. It's, it's called the D School, the Design School. And there used to be an, a very iconic red sofa, red couch that was in the middle of the school. And the school also trained a lot of executives in innovation. And whenever they would come to the school, they would be like, oh my God, there's this red couch. It's so iconic. It's so interesting. And when they went back to their respective corporations, they wanted to bring back innovation, this innovation culture and creativity back to their respective organizations. So the first thing they would do often is buy that couch. And guess what? Just because they had a space with that red couch, didn't really change the culture, didn't really change what was happening inside of that organization. So it's not enough just to organize your space, right, and buy the right kinds of pieces of furniture that will be supportive for different activities you're going to be performing. You have to activate it, right? What are the experiences that you want to have in that space? So that's incredibly important. You have to be intentional. Just because you set it up a certain way doesn't mean those magical things will happen or you will feel calm. So you have to develop a routine to basically help activate this new environment. To sum up, right? So we talk about the prototyping mindset, the right intentions and experience design. And I truly, you know, wish for everyone to be the designer of their own experiences. Thank you for giving us that summary of those really important tools to arm people as they get started. So let's say that somebody has set the right intentions and they start to move into some of the work that you share in the book. Can you give us an example of like, what would prototyping look like in this context? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. One interesting assessment that I recommend people do to set the right intentions is called an energy assessment, right? So if you're a designer, you probably love sticky notes, right? And so you need to grab a couple, you know, some green sticky notes, some red sticky notes or pink sticky notes or Sharpie and walk around your space and label what gives you energy and what drains you. It could be pieces of furniture. It could be just different areas of your house or apartment, right? And just stick it onto that, that piece, that furniture piece or that corner, whatever. And you will know, right? This is an example of something you don't have to overanalyze. Like you will know you love this particular chair or that particular sofa or everybody does. They always sit there and everyone for some reason ignores that very expensive Eames chair that you bought, but no one is sitting in it, right? So, so you will know. So that's a really quick one that'll just give you a quick calibration as to where you are. Sort of is your home the source of energy or is it really draining you? Just starting from setting, you know, kind of understanding and assessing your environment is very important. So in terms of prototyping, I give a great example of, of prototyping an experience. This is related to a business, but also a space. So I have a friend who is a baker. She's actually a designer, but that was, you know, her dream was to have her own bakery. And she was very scared to take that risk and take the leap from being a designer full time to starting her own thing. So what she did is she basically created small prototypes. She bakes meringues with different flavors, like with rose water, with pistachio, whatever. And she set up pop-up shops inside of wine bars and restaurants. So she had a little table, she had her meringues, she paired them with wine and champagne. And she sat there and recorded different reactions right from different customers coming in that was an example of an experience prototype that someone did to prototype their bakery essentially both the business idea and space idea another one i recommend a small experiment but or prototype but with a huge impact is a digital detox 
And I recommend using an object. So on the, say on a Friday night at the end of the work week to use candles and light candles to signal the end of your work. And after that, unplugging from all of your devices, your email, text messages, any screens, right? So I actually recommend no movies, literally digital detox. And try to do that that evening, if possible, the next day and see how you feel, right? So that's a very simple prototype. All you need to do is buy or use whatever candles you have, and that already will create that calm environment that some of us are seeking. So it's really inviting us to, on a small scale, try something out and then see how it makes us feel and notice the difference. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And also reframe. We talk about reframing a lot, right? So for example, I encourage everyone to experiment with whatever even limited space they have but we all have vertical space right we tend to think of our desks as storage right we pile on a lot of things and it becomes not a working surface a work surface but you know storage surface so why not leverage vertical spaces right if you walk into say a design studio you will see that right away because you will see a lot of mood boards posters things like that examples of work in progress that's something you can experiment with you know pick a wall and leverage that as your potential workspace and see how that feels right another one is sitting arrangements we all somehow feel like you know again there are some raised desks in offices but overall it's pretty static so i do talk about various sitting modalities and what they're good for right of course standing is great for being generative if you're brainstorming it's great to be standing to sort of have all the the, the blood flowing and and going for quantity of ideas if you want to be more focused sitting is great if you're collaborating and discussing something with someone you might you know, arrange this ottomans or poofs around and sit more comfortably to just have a discussion an informal discussion or you might do the same with say a cocktail table and kind of bar stools around so there are all these kinds of small things they're not that expensive to experiment with but they could have a profound impact on your sort of work habits and how you feel this gets for me at least Olga to this idea of intention and what I appreciated in those examples and there's a lot more in the book is this idea of how you establish your space for the work you're intending to do in the moment. The way that I framed it for myself was almost like, how do you prime yourself for your work and to be in flow almost? And you talk about the examples of like design terminology of like, are you flaring? Are you ideating? Are you going for a brainstorming? That's a different thing than if you're focusing and how you might be creating your environment might shift depending on what you're trying to do. Yeah, and flaring and focusing, those are the uh, some of the hallmarks of design thinking, right? When we work on, say, a creative project, we go through these modalities multiple times. So we flare when we look for a variety of ideas, then we focus on selecting a subset of them. Then we flare again, and maybe we share these ideas to get some feedback with a variety of people. Then we focus again on to narrow down the final solution and so on and so forth. Throughout your day, you are also perhaps, or at least throughout the week, you are, you are also experiencing that. So we talk about our desk and how we use it as storage. So that's a very simple example. So I, I give an exercise, right? So, you know, take everything off your desk and sort it into three piles. So, you know, things you use every day, things you use sometimes, maybe once a month, and things you basically never use. And then get the blue tape, right, and divide it into four quadrants. And pick, you know, items that you use every day, and maybe a few that you use every month. 
and put it only in the first quadrant, leaving 75% of your desk free to focus on the work versus using it as storage, right? And so clutter, of course, creates a certain noise in our brain as well. So that's, that's one simple example. And I also run workshops where I help people activate some of these messages we're talking about. The first thing we do is we start from a clean slate. So we actually do a decluttering party and really focus on that by starting from a clean slate. Then the second thing we do is we redesign one space, one room and one room only. So we need to focus again and have some constraints. And then we set our intentions. We figure out our prototypes and experiments and we do that. And the last one is we focus on activation, right? So what is the calendar? What are some new routines and habits and rituals you are going to bring into this new environment or this new room, right, that you've just redesigned? So there are specific things, right, that, that we can do to support flaring and focusing in, in even in one area of your of your house or your apartment. One of the things that you bring up throughout the book, and I'm kind of pulling it together because I know these like actually are are covered in different themes in the book, but it's also like this power of visualization. Like you were just talking about like even using the vertical space that we have for us. And I used to work in a branding and design agency. And one of the things that I found interesting was looking at a package design with it flat on a table as opposed to looking at it pinned up on a board. First off, it's rare that you're actually looking at a package flat on a table, so it's not the appropriate way to look at it. So it's more appropriate to look at it as it would be on a shelf in a store. But the other thing is, if you actually just play that prototype or experiment, you will notice that it looks different. You see it differently. And so you you give some examples of this power of visualization around even things like shifting our perspective, putting things up so you can visualize your progress, things of that nature. Can you talk a little bit about just some of those tips that you have around like, what is this power of visualization or ways that we can use, you know, our sight or how we're looking at things in our space differently? Absolutely. I'll give you two examples. So one, one need that I find when I work with clients on specifically on design projects is is overwhelm right you're often they're overwhelmed by various choices and it's hard to make a decision and they feel like i'm you know i'm not a designer i don't know what to choose or you know how how to even begin to especially in their space right there's just too much of everything too too many choices too many shapes too many colors how do i even begin so the first thing i have them do is dump everything that they possibly want I then have them or you know have them come to my space or do it in their space have them print it out cut it out and put it on the wall and then we will begin to focus right so we just say flare dump whatever it is that you want then we will begin to cluster certain ideas you know so if it's about space it could be per room or per furniture type like all the chairs all the desks etc and then we can come up with specific categories like what is a low-hanging fruit for you what is your darling right and what is a moonshot so we begin to focus and it's so much easier to do physically moving things around and on a on a vertical surface so that's one two is a lot of people say well i'm not a designer i'm not engaged in any design projects how do i even leverage them with this vertical surface so i do this all the time i create what i call a parking lot of ideas and you probably have heard this too so if you, again, if you have post-it notes, you can just, often I have an epiphany, sometimes a good one, sometimes not, but there's nothing I can do in that moment about that idea and I'm in the middle of doing something else. So I jot it down and I put it on a 
on the wall, essentially, right, to capture it. And that's my parking lot of ideas. And it could be related to work. It could also be personal, right? I could be like, oh, my God, I forgot about summer camps, right? Summer camps, research, and it goes there or something else, right? And so that's a great way to have a visualization of some things that you might get to at some point, right? And then later on, you might have had a great business idea. You were just in the middle of a Zoom call, right? So you just write it down and you can revisit it next week. And maybe that brilliant idea that might have been lost would lead to something profound in your life or in your business. So those are just two examples of, of very simply using that as an additional surface for you and to bring your attention to important elements quickly. I love these tips. And by the way, if people aren't picking up on the fact yet that designers keep 3M and post-its in business. So if, if you want to be a designer, you need to pick up some post-its and, and a good Sharpie. So one of the topics I wanted to come to, obviously the book is called Calm Living. We've been talking about calm. You also have some other things in the book where you talk about like calming down or even this idea of creating space for ourselves. And I think this is really important, especially for some people from a sustainable ambition perspective, when they're thinking about their life and their work, it's not uncommon for people to not know what they want. And they find it hard to create space in their lives to hear themselves. And so one of the things that I really loved about that you talk about in the book is this idea about like the calm down corner. And it seems like such a practical, fairly simple way to create a discipline around making space for oneself, even where we started the conversation. So can you tell us a little bit more about this concept of like a calm down corner and the power of it? I'll start with the, how I got the inspiration for, for it. And then we'll talk about what that might look like for different people. So a while back, my team and I were, we were invited to run a workshop for an architecture firm, one of the architecture firms that, you know, originally designed the Sea Ranch. And we were invited essentially to this annual retreat for their top architects and to really help them um, get re-energized because they're about to kick off a really important big project and so to to really for them to focus to be resilient to calm down and to also get ready right and so one of the exercises we ended up doing with with the architects there is rice counting the firm was located on one of the piers in san francisco a beautiful location right incredibly well designed inspiring views etc so what we had done is we went into one room, we cleared it of all furniture. And at the beginning of the retreat, we invited all the architects in. And we gave them each a bowl and some rice grains. We gave them an assignment to count rice grains for a minute. At the end of the exercise, we had them reflect on what had happened, right, or why we did that. And so one architect raised his hand and said, well, the goal of the exercise was to count as fast as possible. Another one said it's to count exactly the number of rice grains. It was, you know, 100. So everyone got 100 rice grains. But that wasn't the goal of the exercise. We never said that explicitly. The goal, one of the goals was to slow down, to calm down and center for about a minute. And another goal was to give yourself permission to design that experience for yourself. 
So what we've observed, and we have photos of, of these amazing architects, they were kneeling down on the floor, right? Because the room was empty. There was no furniture there. So you couldn't sit and count. There were no desks. Most of like 99% of the, of the participants sat down and or kneeled down or were very uncomfortable on the floor, right? Counting as fast as possible. Only a few people had left the room. So someone left and went and sat somewhere else and counted and then came back. Somebody else actually brought a little chair and somebody else brought a poof, right? And so we actually asked most of them, how come we never explicitly forbid you from being more comfortable and creating your own experience, yet you boxed yourself in, you literally constrained yourself. So, so this, this is where the concept of the calm down corner came from, right? So we, first of all, we all, it's incredibly powerful. Try it, right? Just grab some rice grains and a bowl, find a quiet space, whatever calm means for you. And try counting before any important meeting or any stressful Zoom call or any, any big project kickoff, you will instantly feel more centered. And then the next piece is calm is different for everyone. And that's what I talk about in the book, right? So it, it is not static, first of all. But second of all, there's no size fits all. So I can provide recommendations for a more pleasing environment, for certain rituals and practices you can do, but it will be unique to you. So to design, right, to create that calm down corner, it's important to understand who you are first and foremost, right? And I give an example of a calm down corner I've designed for my friend. But truly, that's where the inspiration came from, that every, I believe everyone deserves that. It does, and it doesn't take much space to, to have that kind of practice for yourself. The other thing in this space that I thought was really interesting is this idea of object attachment. I think we all know this intuitively, that objects can have meaning. This is one of those things that I don't think we think about enough and could be a really simple way to add value, if you will, to our space. But how should people think about this idea of object attachment? So so one of the things that everyone probably remembers is from their childhood, right? We all had an attachment object our favorite bunny, right, as, as little children, or maybe it's a blanket or something like that. So my, my concept is why not leverage that now, right, to keep comfort within reach. So objects can have meaning for us, and they do. And I talk about three, three values, right, we can, we can assign to objects. One is sentimental. So our, you know, photos of our loved ones or a watch that a grandfather had given his grandson, things like that. They may not be aesthetically pleasing or beautiful, but they hold a certain sentimental value. Having that within reach for calming down is incredibly important, right? We all, you know, have that or some of us have that. So being intentional, right, and almost creating a gallery experience or a shrine experience could be how you resurface some of the sentimental objects. Another one is the aesthetic value. So some of us have our favorite mug, for example. We love how it feels. We love how it looks. Maybe there's some writing on it. Could be a throw blanket that we love, right? So those have aesthetic value. And those are incredibly important too because they're pleasing to us and to our spirit. For whatever reason, we gravitate toward that. And I recommend that you know, go shopping. <laughs> now that the stores are open, go to various home goods stores and design stores and don't buy anything, but just see what you gravitate toward and maybe have a little journal, a little notebook. And uh, you can also take pictures, right, of the interesting things that for whatever reason, not something you need, but just something you love for, for its aesthetic value. Just try to get to know yourself 
right? And your taste. Don't rely on designers to tell you what you love. It can be furniture, but it could also be whatever it might be, little vases or mugs or things like that. Just go explore. So be, be go flare, essentially, to discover some of those. And those are really fun because they represent you and who you are and not, say, a trend or a taste that someone else has imposed on you. And the last one is spiritual value. Right? So we talk about certain objects holding spiritual meaning. In a variety of cultures, we have, say, ritualistic objects. For example, Palo Santo, right? So that, that has become very popular recently, lighting Palo Santo as a way to sort of cleanse the space. Another one is I talked about candles, for example, in Judaism, using candles, uh, Shabbat candles to light and signify the beginning of Shabbat. Right, so some objects may hold this kind of meaning, and I encourage for you, for everyone, to have sort of a toolkit of those. Right, so if you are going to do digital detox, candles are great, and that's one of the one of the products that I've actually invested in is to to say, look, you can invest very little and have a huge impact in your home. So those three, I think, are very important. There are others as well, right? You may have a statement pieces that you might showcase, for example, when guests come or a conversation starters, etc. I didn't focus as much on those because I really wanted to assemble those objects into your toolkits and keep that comfort within reach because that's that's really the goal is to leverage, to be intentional about that that kind of a, you know, assembly. So here you've just shared all these, you know, fabulous ways, and there's more in the book about how we can really craft our space to support us and do our best work. And I'm wondering what you're sensing now around this idea of hybrid work and it not going away and you working with organizations in this space as well. I think you said, I'm not going to remember the exact word, but it's, you know, that we're in a fluid space right now. It's being designed as we speak. It's not a, oh, we've landed and what hybrid is going to look like. So is there any guidance you might give us to kind of how should we navigate this world right now? That's a great $1 million question for sure. Well, one thing that I think would be an important goal for us is to shift from resilience to thriving. We talk a lot about resilience right now, right? Because we are in an economic downturn, we're in hybrid, we're coming out of the pandemic. And so there are a lot of conversations about resilience. How do we stay resilient as leaders, as employees, as employers, right, through through these times. So my hope for the future work is to shift from that resilience and survival mode into thriving, right? And so at some point, we will come out of this economic downturn, right? So what is the future of work? Again, I think hybrid is here to stay, and many other experts agree. So I think, again, that shift from resilience to thriving is very important. And so we all need to collectively design that employee experience. My personal belief is design thinking is an extremely important and right process for this because it's rooted in human needs, right? It's it's a human-centered design approach to innovation. And we essentially need to be very creative and innovative as, as to how we approach this. So, so I feel like that shift needs to happen. And the other is no size fits all. I think some best practices will be emerging and are emerging. I don't think we all have our answers yet, but I still think that it will be pretty tailored to each organization and the organization's goals, the employee experience, and the people and community leaders who are, who are running it. Of course, everything is important. Productivity, creativity, innovation, 
and mental health and well-being, right? And avoiding burnout, etc. But you have to prioritize certain things, right? And so if you're trying to bring creativity and innovation back in, and figure out the best possible combinations in the hybrid work environment, that's one. If you're increasing productivity, it's another. And of course, the underlying kind of current there is that without being well mentally and being resilient, all of that falls apart, right? So the compounding stresses are very real right now. And so we need to address that as well. I really appreciate that. I also appreciate that you're pulling forward this, like the word that I will use is just different modalities. So Mm -hmm. oftentimes, even myself, sometimes I get stuck in thinking that it's about, and actually I don't like these words, but I think about performance and productivity. But I love that you're bringing forward it's not just about that. There's different ways of working. Again, like, are you trying to foster creativity? Are you trying to foster innovation? Again, those types of activities require different design and experience design, as as you've alluded to. So I really appreciate that. I was curious, too, as a designer, you know, you've started to shape your own next, like, life and work arc. And I'm curious, how you bring these modalities into and use your own design skill set just to shape your own life with work. I so, so one thing that I've done as part of this book, you know, is to interview others, but also you know to to experiment with my own life and work life. One of the things I've I've done is I've asked myself. So this is one of the biggest challenges I've ever faced. Right, this kind of re- first remote. Right when we were in, in, in lockdown, remote kind of work, and now hybrid and also working for myself. I was a corporate leader and I've decided to actually pursue my own consulting practice and write and publish a book, right? So that was a conscious choice. A lot of it, I think, has to do with reframing. So designers use this tool called How Might We, which is to ask ourselves a question of how might we approach this challenge as the biggest opportunity. So I've asked this question for myself and I've ended up working in Hawaii during COVID for some of the time in Maui, because I felt like this was probably the most unique and maybe the only opportunity I would get to be fully remote. My daughter was remote as well with her school. And so we ended up doing that. And the time difference with California wasn't that bad. So I think for me personally, I always like to ask this, how might I, or how might we question to see how might I leverage the situation or the the challenge and what might be something that I'm overlooking, and I encourage others to do the same thing. And I do believe that you can apply your skills. So if we're talking about sustainable ambition, so the skills that I've acquired personally in graduate school, in design school, in my career as a management consultant, design consultant, later as a corporate executive, I realized that I could apply it to my own business and my own endeavor. And again, my goal in, in, with this book and with this consulting practice is to really help shape the future of work and help many women, and not only women, but who, who have been suffering from burnout over the last three years, right? And so to really redesign this experience, because I do believe it could be better. And so, you know, and again, I'm living it myself as well. You know, an entrepreneurial lifestyle is certainly very different also very fluid and requires a lot of shifting, right? Environment shifting, context shifting. So I'm living it as I'm speaking it. I'm learning from everyone along the way and sharing what I know and what I've experienced. And again, leveraging design thinking is my my go-to tool. 
I really love your ambition you have for yourself around this book and helping people shape their own experiences, make it better for themselves, as well as shape the future of work. So to build on that, just is there anything further you want to highlight in terms of what is your hope for how that might change things in the world? Is it to move us again from that resilience to the thriving? Or is there anything more that you want to highlight there? Well, my, I think the, the goal of my book is to empower both employees and employers to, to design this future together, right? And I think, again, we have tools to prototype and experiment to see what fits our, our situation and our spirit. So that, that's really my goal, right, is to empower and, and, and do it together, right? My ambition for this book is to activate it. Right. And so print with a print form is one medium. I'll be helping um, those who are interested activate the book with workshops. So we will be living it. Essentially, we will be doing some of the exercises and activities in different spaces, as well as consulting various organizations on what the future of work might look like for them. So I'm literally, you know, I want to activate the message of this book. And I keep thinking about what's next as well, right? So as soon as I wrote this book and published it, ChatGPT became so popular. And every, a lot of people have been now thinking about what does it mean for writers? What does it mean for, for magazines, for print publications, etc. So that's a fascinating area, right? So we keep evolving. We keep going forward. So again, this, this, is, this big problem, as some may, may treat it, is also a great opportunity. So how can we think about that differently? So I'm personally embracing that and saying, great. So, you know, my media might be podcasts and workshops and live engagements and speaking engagements, because that's truly how you get the message and how you can embrace and actually prototype and do things. And really, again, the, the, the core, core goal for me is bias to action. So whether it's an organization or an employee, I would want them to have that bias to action and, and act on some of the messages in the book. I really love the invitation you're offering all of us. You are empowering us and giving us the tools and the ideas and approaches to really start to bring this to life. I love the focus on like also tuning into ourselves, seeing ourselves as the human who needs to be understood and brought forth into the experience design. And I also really appreciate how accessible you make this for all of us, Olga, both in how the book is written, as well as this doesn't have to cost a lot, right? This isn't about like going and spending a lot of money. And so there's a lot of simple things that we can do to really activate our space to work better for us. So I just want to close, you've already given us so many wonderful tips, but is, is there just a final takeaway or guidance you'd love to leave our listeners with to really step into calm living? Well, I would encourage everyone to start this week, right? And so I talk about this in my book about tiny habits, embracing tiny habits. The first step to big change is, is I believe, this time developing at least one tiny habit that you want to have for calm. So maybe reflect and think about what that new habit that you want to create in your environment, in your space, and then we'll go from there. But at least that would be the first step. So I always encourage that bias to action. So, so let's, let's take the first step toward creating spaces that will support us and not the other way around. That's wonderful. Olga, if people want to learn more about you and the book, where can they find you? So they can follow, please follow me 
on Instagram, air is mare. And you can find me on LinkedIn as well, Olga Trusova. And of course, you can find the book on Amazon and Chronicle Books. The book is called Calm Living. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for being on with me today. You've given us so much to really think about and get into action with. So appreciate you being on and sharing all of your insight from the book, Calm Living. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kathy, for having me. Okay, are you inspired? It's time to step into being a designer and get into action. So grab your post-its and a Sharpie pen, set your intention, ask, how might I, and start prototyping. And don't be intimidated. As Olga said, you already are a designer. You just may not realize it. Now, with Olga's guidance, you can design with intention and to make your space work for you so you can thrive and operate at your best. I loved Olga's easy energy assessment to walk around your space and really identify what's working for you and what's not, what gives you energy and what drains you. Just raising that consciousness of how your space is working for you can be really insightful and illuminating. I'm also really drawn to this idea of creating spaces for intentional use. Even something as simple as having a parking lot of ideas and being called to do that and make it more visual as opposed to it just living inside a notes app, for example. I know this is one of the things I'm going to take on to simply get things out of my head, but also to have them in front of me to use as inspiration. I also was really drawn to this idea of a comfort corner and keeping comfort within reach. How can you think about a space that you can carve out for yourself? And what's an object that holds meaning for you that can give you comfort? And finally, don't forget to prototype. I think this is important for sustainable ambition overall. As Olga says, there's no one size fits all. You need to try things out and find what works for you. So prototype one of the many ideas Olga shared, like the end of week digital detox kicked off with lighting some candles to signify a transition to step into a time for calm. As you reflect on today's conversation, what spoke to you? What tiny first step do you want to take to find your calm living and help you thrive? Thank you for being here with me to learn from Olga Trasova. I'll be back in your feed in two weeks with a new inspiring story of sustainable ambition. And in the meantime, make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And you can find show notes for this and other episodes at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Be well and see you soon.